as we go through the day of sitting and walking, we use the quality of mindfulness as the central feature, you could say, for developing and deepening our practice. And it truly is a key quality that allows for clear seeing and understanding of how we create suffering to ourselves and of what it takes to stop ourselves from creating suffering right here and now. What it takes to be more free, more at ease, more at home within ourselves and in the world. In addition to mindfulness, there are a number of other qualities of the heart and mind that are most essential to this process of understanding and of liberation. There's a group of mental factors, which are called indriyas, or something like maybe controlling faculties, and there are eight. And five of these are known as the so-called spiritual controlling faculties. And I think we have a problem with translation. Doesn't sound very inspiring. Spiritual controlling faculties, I think, but that's <laughs> what it translates. Anyway, these five indriyas are faith or trust, yeah. effort, energy, the mindfulness, awareness, concentration, collectedness, and the fifth one, wisdom or insight. And it's these qualities which we need to strengthen if we wish to deepen our understanding of life, or to like to transform our relationship to life. The common function of this Andreas consists in exercising a dominating or governing or controlling influence over all the other emotional and mental qualities and factors that are associated with them. The word Indriya derives from the Pali word Inda or the Sanskrit word Indra, which means ruler or governor or lord. Indra is the king of the devas, of the gods. Yes. So these qualities or factors influence, determine or control the mind state in which they're present. That's why they're called determining or controlling faculties. They bring their negative, unwholesome opposites under control. Faith, trust, keeps, doubt, fear, worry, disappointment, discouragement, not disappointment, discouragement, lack of devotion, under control. Effort, energy, overcomes laziness, drowsiness, Mindfulness eliminates unawareness, 
concentration and collectedness controls restlessness and distraction. And wisdom dissolves ignorance and delusion. That's in this way that, that they're controlling, controlling their opposites. The first of these qualities or indriyas is faith or trust. The word in the Pali language, sata, derives from the word sam, well, and from the root da, to establish, to place, to put. It's a kind of being well established. And traditionally it means, in particular, well established confidence in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And this means faith and trust into awakening from delusion. Faith into the possibility of awakening into our own potential for liberation or inner freedom. Faith and trust in the awakened ones. Buddha means someone who is awakened. It also means faith and trust into the teachings and the ways and means which help us to recognize the universal laws, which help us to see into the true nature of reality. And those ways and means and teachings which bring us into harmony with existence, with reality. Dharma. And it also means faith and trust in those who have walked the path before us, those who walk somewhat ahead of us, and those who walk together with us. Sangha. Taking refuge, which means reflecting on and exploring what it is that we can put our total faith and trust into in this very unstable, incontrollable world. That's really a basic and central exercise and practice of faith, of trust. A practice worth training in, worth reflecting on, worth practicing regularly. This faith, this trust, is a quality of the heart that appeases the upheaval and the commotion of the tormenting emotions of greed and anger and all the rest. It's a quality that brings relief from fear, from anxiety, from separation and all the rest. Faith is said to act as a gateway for all the wholesome and all the beautiful qualities of heart and mind. Because when this kind of faith is present, then openness, generosity, kindness, care, and all the other beautiful qualities are also present. So it's a wonderful and desirable quality in our life and in our practice. 
The texts speak of three kinds of faith or trust. One is bright or enthusiastic faith, one is verified faith, and one is unshakable faith or certainty. And I want to try to be short on this because Ursula is going to talk about it a lot more tomorrow. The first one, bright enthusiastic faith, can arise when we meet perhaps an inspiring person or we hear a convincing discourse or teaching on liberation or we hear words of wisdom that are very deep or touching. It's a kind of faith that can cause us to move forward, maybe to make contact, begin a spiritual practice, maybe to enter the path. It's a very inspired, joyful kind of faith or experience, maybe comparable to the phase of falling in love in a relationship, maybe the honeymoon phase of faith. Moments of this kind of bright, inspiring, enthusiastic faith are important in our life. They can change our life, they can transform ourselves, and mostly our direction in life can be changed by that kind of inspiration. Yet this kind of enthusiastic, enthusiastic faith can also be dangerous because it lacks an element of wisdom. It can quite easily become blind faith. It can even become mere belief. Something sounds inspiring and we're, we think it could be true and because it's so well said or so well put and the person who says it is maybe so inspiring to us, we think it's probably true and we start to believe it. So, that kind of faith isn't yet verified, it's still kind of blind. This the story of Nasiruddin spreading breadcrumbs, pieces of bread around his house, and his friend comes around and says, what are you doing here, Nasiruddin? And he says, spreading breadcrumbs. Say, what's it good for? He says, it keeps the tigers away. Well, it keeps the tigers away? There are no tigers for about 500 to 1,000 miles around here. And Nasruddin says, see how effective it is? <laughs> it's like we see something <laughs> and it inspires us, but we're not quite sure where it comes from. So obviously we need to check to verify whether what we see is because of the breadcrumbs or because of something else. And through practice, through trying out, through investigation, through inquiry, into our hearts and our minds, that we verify what inspired us in the first place, whether it be teachings or whatever. And as our practice, our insight and understanding deepens, 
and we start to see, to know for ourselves quite clearly what works, then our faith starts to become verified faith. We have tested it, we have checked it out, and we know for ourselves. It's a deeper, more steady kind of faith and trust that can take us a long way. And it's when we've seen very deeply into the nature of things that's when eventually our faith becomes unshakable faith or certainty. And that's as much as I want to say on faith for now. Of course, to develop this kind of verified and even unshakable faith, we also need the other spiritual faculties or indriyas of effort, of mindfulness, of concentration and of wisdom. Virya or effort or energy is the second quality or indriya here. The text says effort, energy, virya should be seen as the root of all realizations. This quality is an indriya, or a spiritual controlling faculty, because it overcomes laziness. The word virya really means heroic, or is there something like heroinic? <laughs> heroinic? <laughs> okay, heroic. It points at an important aspect <laughs> of the faculty. The Burmese master, Pandita Sayadaw, often speaks about heroic effort with respect to a consistent, continuous application of effort to being mindful, being present. And I think what we try to do here is certainly very demanding in many ways. It's not for cowards to expose oneself to oneself for hours, for days, even weeks or years. It takes courage, it takes bravery. At times we believe or hope maybe that the practice of meditation, of life, a life of spirituality, is a matter of following our heart. It's something I hear quite often. Almost. But not quite, though. There's a subtle nuance in this. Ajahn Sumedho says, this practice is not a matter of following our heart, but it's a matter of training our heart. It's an interesting difference there. The young Songsar Kensi Rinpoche calls this quality discipline. He says, with discipline it's very interesting. It's something we don't want to have. It's something we want to have around us. <laughs> uh, discipline, effort, energy. I think most important is that we understand clearly what it is that we make our effort for, or towards. 
Krishnamurti once said, it's the truth that liberates, not our effort to be free. It's a very interesting statement. It's the truth that liberates, not our effort to be free. What we do here does take tremendous interest, effort, and attention. But it's not the effort to change things. It's not the effort to control, to manipulate, to improve them according to our wishes or our ideas or or according to what we think they should be. Rather, it's the effort to see reality, to see the truth as it is, to connect, the effort to connect with reality, to connect with the truth as it is. That, then, will be transforming. So it's the effort to come back to where we already are, to mindfully feel and perceive what is present right here and now. That's certainly not always easy, but it's extraordinarily simple. Result kind of exercise. Maybe you want to do it again. If you just want to feel your right hand where it is right now. It doesn't take much to feel it, right? Kind of a shift of attention and the next moment you feel it. Now, I don't know what you feel, maybe some warmth. I feel some coolness at the tip of the fingers. There's pressure where I touch the leg. So you feel what it feels like right? Try to feel something else now. It's difficult, isn't it? You actually can't do it. You can make a real effort to feel something different from the way it feels. You can't do it. This is what we do a lot in meditation. We make the effort to make things different from what they are, and it doesn't work. And then we go to the interview and we say, it was really difficult today, it didn't work. Much of the time what we mean by it didn't work is, I wasn't able with all the effort to make it the way I wanted it. It kept on being the way it is. (laughs) (laughs) So, it's important, isn't it, to understand that the effort we're making is over and over just what it takes to wake up to what is just what it takes to connect with what we already feel, what is already present. That is not easy when what is present is unpleasant or painful or different from what we would like it to be. But it's simple, just that much. Now to make things a bit more complicated, let's look at how right effort is described traditionally. Right or appropriate effort is said to be fourfold. It consists in causing wholesome mind states that are not yet present to arise. And we do that. We cause mindfulness, kindness to arise. Secondly, strengthening wholesome mind states that are already present within us. 
And thirdly, avoiding unwholesome negative mind states that are not present in us. And the fourth is letting go of unwholesome negative mind states that are present in us. Now hearing this, one might get the impression that a lot has to be done actually, to be changed, controlled or created or fabricated. And yet in fact, what it takes to achieve this fourfold effort is exactly the appropriate kind of mindfulness, the appropriate kind of attention, awareness. Whenever we are present with an interested, careful, truly non-judgmental, friendly, caring mindfulness, the fourfold effort is achieved. Because that mindfulness is already a wholesome mind state, which brings about all the other wholesome mind states. And it is strengthening the ones that are already present. And when unwholesome negative mind states are present, it does not buy into them, it does not feed them, and eventually, by themselves, they fade out, they drop away, they lose power. So it's this kind of wholesome space of mindfulness, of awareness, that will engender and strengthen wholesomeness and cause unwholesomeness to lose momentum and eventually to heal. So the appropriate effort really is to cultivate the third spiritual faculty, namely right or appropriate mindfulness. And to me, there's many reasons why it's called right or appropriate. I think that's an important part. What I think, at this point, may be the most important meaning of that, appropriate, is that it is a mindfulness that is willing to feel what is, to see what is, and to be with what is, rather than a manipulating, critical, judgmental mindfulness, which in a way isn't really what is meant by mindfulness. So, appropriate mindfulness. It's really the heart of practice. called sati in Pali, related to the word to remember. In a way, it's to remember to be present in this moment, to remember this moment, to be awake, attentive, and aware. And it's not judgmental, it's not evaluating critical awareness, but an interested, kind, balanced, sensing, recognizing, and seeing of what is right now. And obviously, there will be a lot of unbalanced, unbalancedness with our mindfulness. There will be judgments, as we probably all have seen already. There will be comparing. There will be all of that. But really what it takes is just to make our mindfulness or our awareness wider and include that too. And just see, oh, now there's the breath and there's a sense that this isn't good enough. And there's awareness of both. So it can all be included. It doesn't mean we have to try to be kind of perfectionistic. How do you say that? Perfectionist. With, thank you. With our mindfulness. 
but to simply over and over see how it is. And even if it's perfectionist and we don't want it to be that way, we open to that and see, oh, okay, this is how it is now. And then it's not the problem. The effort to be aware isn't an act of will or force, but a waking up to seeing clearly what is. Ramdas says it's an act of tuning. We tune into this moment's experience, perhaps. What needs to be part of the mindfulness is the quality of great care of real interest and continuity. And here's the well-known saying of the late Thai teacher, Ajahn Chah. It's quite famous. Your practice should begin as soon as you awaken in the morning. It should continue until you fall asleep. Don't be concerned about how long you can sit. Some people think that, that the longer you can sit, the wiser you must be. I've seen chickens sit on their nests for days on end. <laughs> what is important is only that you keep watchful, mindful, whether you're walking or sitting or going to the bathroom. In a way, it's a kind of silent, careful listening. Kabir says, why do they call God in such a loud voice in their prayer at dusk? Surely the Holy One is not deaf. She hears the delicate anklets that ring on the feet of a tiny insect as it walks. And maybe it's that quality too that it takes, that care and attention it takes to listen to the tingling of the bells on the anklets of a tiny insect as it walks. What does it mean to be aware of this moment? It's not thinking about the present. It's not analyzing this moment's experience. It's not comparing, judging, changing, controlling the experience. It simply means to make contact with it, to feel, see, notice directly what is present. And in this way we connect with the breath, we connect with all the pleasant, unpleasant or neutral body sensations, and we'll, as we go along in the retreat, we'll include all this formally. We're aware of our sense experience of hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, when they're present. We're mindful of our feelings, our emotions, our various mental factors, meaning we're aware but not lost in them. And we know when thinking, when ideas and concepts are present in the mind, again, without being identified or caught in them. We're mindful and aware of any experience that arises at the present moment, as far as we can do that.
Mindfulness is an indriya, or a spiritual faculty, because it awakens us from unawareness, from mechanical, habitual ways of acting and being, and from identification with our experience. My Tibetan teacher, Nyatal Kempo Rinpoche, wrote, and being a Tibetan, he uses a very evocative, sometimes also very blunt language and imagery, as you'll see. Mindfulness, the mirror of mind. I am the Vajra of mindfulness, the indestructible mindfulness. Look, O friends, when you see me, take mindfulness as a support. I am the mirror of mindfulness. Look undistracted at the nature of your mind. Mindfulness is the root of the Dharma. Mindfulness is the main practice of the path. Mindfulness is a staff for the mind to lean on. Mindfulness is the friend of primordial wisdom awareness. Mindfulness is the support of Mahamudra, Dzogchen and Madhyamika, three important traditions in Tibetan Buddhism. Without mindfulness, one will be overcome by Mara, the personification of what's unwholesome, what's destructive. Without mindfulness, one is carried away by laziness. Through lack of mindfulness, all negative actions are committed. Through lack of mindfulness, one's aims cannot be accomplished. To be without mindfulness is to be like a heap of shit. To be without mindfulness is to slumber in an ocean of piss. To be without mindfulness is to be a lifeless corpse. Friends, I request you, take mindfulness as a support. <laughs> there's faith, there's effort. Number three, mindfulness, awareness. Continual effort to be aware and present brings about collectedness and concentration, which is the fourth of this indriya, the fourth spiritual faculty. We could say that the mindfulness, the awareness, is comparable to the light, to the brightness, which makes it possible to see, if you think of a lamp or a candle, maybe. Collectedness, concentration, is the steadiness of a flame, of a lamp, which allows for a clearer, more precise, more profound seeing. Concentration and steadiness is an indriya, is a spiritual controlling faculty, because it brings distractedness, scatteredness and restlessness (coughs) under control. It is defined as a quality which enables the mind to abide one-pointedly on an object for a prolonged period of time. Concentration and steadiness 
is the most helpful, most supporting quality of heart and mind, particularly in meditation, but of course, anywhere in life. It's also a very good basis to have first in meditation. That's why it's useful to spend quite some time just on the breath, just in very simple objects of walking up and down or breathing in and out to focus the mind, to collect the mind. In order to develop, strengthen that steadiness, that concentration, two specific qualities that we need to strengthen, and I think I talked about them yesterday morning, maybe. That the first two of the so-called jhana factors, or factors of absorption, they're in Pali, they're vitaka and vichara, and I still haven't found the word that I would want to use standing for them, but I'll explain them. Vitaka means aspiration, or it means going towards the object, or going towards the aim. Sometimes it's called applied thought. We could say we apply the mindfulness. It's making contact with the object, whatever it is, the breath, or the movement, or a sound, or a smell, or a thought. And the other one, vichara, means appreciation, staying with the object, holding the contact, Sometimes it's also called sustained thought or sustained mindfulness, maybe. It's the keeping the mindfulness on the object. The first is the movement towards the object, the making of contact with the breath, with the tension in the shoulder, with the sound. Vichara, the second, is the staying with the object, the holding of the contact. There's a number of illustrations they give. Vitaka is the hitting of the bell, and vichara is when it keeps on, and the sound keeps on going. It's like a bee flying to a flower. That's the first one, and then the second one is enjoying the flower, whatever bees do in flowers. Or like a bird flapping wings to take off, so it takes that initial effort, and then gliding along. Or it's like grasping a plate and sort of drying it, rubbing it. Strengthening these qualities of vitaka and vichara generates concentration, generates steadiness of mind, generates one-pointedness. Doing it with continuity deepens the concentration and the steadiness. So if we make the contact and stay with it, and then over and over we make the contact and stay with it, throughout the day, in whatever we do, in the sitting, in the walking, in standing up, in sitting down, in putting on our shoes, in opening, closing doors, in going outside, in coming stepping inside, in dressing, in undressing, in lying down, and 
standing up and showering, over and over to connect with what is happening right now and sustain the connection. It deepens the concentration and the steadiness much the way the rubbing of two pieces of wood will generate heat and eventually fire if we just do it long enough without stopping and waiting for it to cool down again. Yet all this faith, all this effort, this mindful and concentrated awareness serves one purpose. Creating the conditions for insight, for wisdom to arise, which is the fifth spiritual faculty. Since it is through wise and clear seeing that equanimity, serenity, and inner freedom, and also love and compassion will arise. There's a big thing about mindfulness. We even call the meditation of mindfulness meditation. Um, in many circles, even outside meditation, I've seen that people love this thing, mindfulness, being aware, being present. And I think it's a wonderful thing. It makes us more alive. We're present with life as it happens instead of being somewhere else while it happens. It's, it's um, energizing. But I think we also have to remember that in this context here, it has a purpose. In sort of self, what do you call that? Not self-experience circles and groups. There's one kind of discipline, which is a, a kind of awareness practice. And uh, I've practiced with those people, and some of them, they're amazingly uh, proficient and good in being mindful of, of, in ways, you know, sometimes I wish to be able to do that. And there's particularly one person that is very famous for doing that, and apparently she's brilliant in seeing, you know, where people are stuck and where they're unaware and all that. And it's very inspiring. And I'm also told that she's very difficult to be with. She does not have an easy life with herself and with others. In fact, she makes life pretty difficult sometimes for others. So immediately the question come, comes in, if mindfulness is, is such a great thing, why did it not transform her in those decades of being mindful? It's an important point to be aware of. Mindfulness is for the purpose of seeing and understanding and through that, transforming ourselves. It's for the purpose of really coming in contact with reality and with life in a way that then informs us, informs our heart and our mind of what is true and what isn't. And, you know, allows the heart and the mind to be touched, to be transformed. And unless it is doing that, I'm not so sure what the mindfulness is all about. Panya, understanding, wisdom, 
is related to pa, which means right or correct, and nya, knowing or understanding. The panya wisdom here means correct comprehension of reality, insight into how things really are, into the processes of the heart and mind and of existence. Wisdom, insight, eliminates or illumines or enlightens us from ignorance, from delusion, from unrealistic perception of things and of life. That's why it's an indriya, a spiritual controlling faculty, the fifth one. What this wisdom, Panya sees clearly, is the impermanence of all things in existence. Outside or within, ourselves or the world, there's nothing solid, there's nothing fixed, but it's a dynamic process and pattern of constantly arising and changing experience. Nothing solid, nothing that we can really grasp and hold on to in a way like a dream or like a reflection, like a mirage. The American Indian Crowfoot says, what is life? It is the flash of a firefly in the night. It is the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. Nyozhu Ken Rinpoche writes, all the dharmas, all the phenomena, though thought to be permanent, they do not last. When examined, they are just empty forms. They appear without true existence. Look outward at the appearing objects. And like the water in a mirage, they're more delusive than delusions. Unreal like dreams and illusions. They resemble a reflected moon or a rainbow. Look inward at your own mind. It seems quite exciting when not examined. But when examined, there's nothing to it. It cannot be identified saying, that's it. But is evanescent and Ill elusive like mist the sky-like nature of mind. We meditate in order to get directly in touch with this fact, with this nature of impermanence, with this nature of ingraspability, if there's such a word, of all things. And that's why we practice and develop all this indriya. As Krishnamurti says, it's the truth that liberates, not our effort to be free. We know that this world, all things, are impermanent, in constant flux and not graspable. Yet, in spite of knowing better, we hold on to things, to people, to situations. We cling to them and want to keep them, to make them the way we think they should be and thus create tremendous amounts of suffering for ourselves. But whenever we directly see and experience the dynamic, non-graspable nature of things, 
we will let go, we're bound to let go, we're bound to allow things to be their own way. We're willing to dance to the rhythm of the universe rather than endlessly struggle against it in the hope that the universe will eventually adjust to my wishes and dance to my melody. Vevu Vey says, the reason why we have so much trouble in life is that we do 99% of all for ourselves and there isn't one. The experience, the insight which is deep enough to really touch us, to really transform and liberate our inner attitude, our inner being, that is wisdom or panya or prajna. It's insight and wisdom also that sees through our apparent separateness and thus allows for connectedness, for belonging, for kindness and for compassion to arise. There's one last point I want to make. What's interesting, I hope, for us meditators is the fact that the indriyas balance each other and in fact need to be brought into balance. The image that's used here is one of a chariot drawn by two pairs of horses. To move safely and effectively, a skillful charioteer is needed who sees to it that the horses, you say, pull evenly, draw, pull, whatever, in the right direction. Faith and wisdom is number one and five and effort and concentration, number two and four, are the two times two horses. Mindfulness, awareness, number three, is the skillful charioteer. We've already seen in the beginning that faith needs to be balanced and complemented by wisdom so that faith isn't blind and wisdom isn't merely cerebral or intellectual without touching the depth. When there's wisdom, understanding, but no faith, no devotion, no deep trust, we may understand something very clearly, even from experience, but we may not translate it easily into actual life. Faith provides the necessary emotional component, we could say, of commitment, of devotion, of heartfeltness. To be paired and balanced with concentration. Energy, effort brings about wakefulness, clarity, and strength in our mind, which gets balanced and maybe harnessed or channeled 
by the focus, by the depth and the calm of concentration. Effort and energy without concentration can cause restlessness, while concentration with too little energy will cause the mind to sink. We're concentrated, we're right on the breath, and we're not distracted, but it's like as if, the, as if we were sinking into the object, the lack of energy, of effort. That eventually can lead to dullness, drowsiness, sleepiness. Mindfulness is the quality that recognizes what's lacking and what is in excess. It's the spiritual faculty which takes care of the balancing and in this way allows for deepening. It's the charioteer who controls, directs, steers the chariot on its way to awakening, on its way to liberation. On the way, of course, we don't only need insight and wisdom, but also loving kindness and compassion. Just as a bird needs two wings to be able to fly. Yet when insight and wisdom is genuine and deep, there also does arise a deep sense of connectedness and of care for living beings and for all of life. The Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj expressed this quite poetically, and I like to close with this. Wisdom tells me that I'm nothing. Love tells me that I'm everything. Between the two, my life flows. Wisdom tells me that I'm nothing. Love tells me that I'm everything. Between the two, my life flows. I'd like to sit quietly for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.